Welcome to the Portland Countdown, a project of the World Parkinson Coalition made possible with support from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. I'm Dave Iverson. And I'm John Palfreman. Each month, Dave and I take a look at a specific topic of interest in Parkinson's disease as we count down to the fourth World Parkinson Congress in Portland, Oregon in September 2016. And Dave, today we turn to a problem that just about everybody with Parkinson's contends with, the problem of sleep. It's true. You know, John, when I moderate discussions at various patient education gatherings around the country, I I sometimes will ask people to raise their hands if they experience particular symptoms, tremor or muscle rigidity, speech issues, and so forth. But the problem where everyone always raises their hand is sleep. And so to get a better understanding of what those sleep problems are and why they happen so frequently in Parkinson's, we talked with Dr. Sam Frank, a neurologist specializing in Parkinson's disease at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. He began by describing how sleep issues in Parkinson's differ from those in the general population. Insomnia is typically we think about as onset insomnia, meaning people have trouble falling asleep. But people with Parkinson's have maintenance insomnia, so they have trouble staying asleep. So they can fall asleep rather rapidly or readily and may stay asleep for an hour, two, three, and then are up in the middle of the night and very much disrupted from that point forward. Uh, They also can have a much higher incidence of REM sleep behavior disorder. So that's where people that the firewall in between the brain and body that happens in REM sleep is malfunctional. And so the, the signals go out to the body and we act patients with Parkinson's or even at risk for Parkinson's disease may act out their dreams in the middle of the night. And that can put them in harm's way, whether it's falling out of bed or their bed partners that may be at risk for for harm. So those are the, the main issues that we talk about, but there are others that come up as well. So I've seen a figure that says that over 90% of Parkinson patients have some sort of sleep disorder. Is it very prevalent in the population? Yeah, those studies are consistent over time, and anywhere from 70 to 90% of people have some type of disruption of their sleep because of Parkinson's disease. And I think that my clinical impression is that that's relatively accurate. In fact, that dates back to some of the earliest descriptions of Parkinson's disease when it was described that tremors would keep people up. That's not generally the main issues that we go after now because we have treatments for Parkinson's disease, but I would say that it is the vast majority of people that have sleeping issues with Parkinson's disease. So you've mentioned an inability to fall asleep and a difficulty in staying asleep. Can you also talk a bit about uncomfortable sensations in the legs? I've heard people complain about that. Yeah, so uncomfortable sensations in the leg is a great way to put it because it's relatively broad, but I think that it kind of falls under two main categories. There are abnormal sensations in the legs, and this can be because of Parkinson's disease, and we don't fully understand it, whether it's minor damage to the small nerves in the leg to cause a neuropathy, or it's a restless legs type of picture. Um, I think that it's most likely a combination, but restless legs can give people an uncomfortable sensation in their legs and can keep them up or wake them up depending on the cycle of their medications. And this is also something that we've seen since a, a broader use of deep brain stimulation. With deep brain stimulation, people on average can cut their medication dose in half, and some people can come off of medications. That's unusual, but it does happen. In people who get on uh, no medications or low medications, sometimes they have to go back on some of their Parkinson's medications because 
their restless legs comes out. So it is an underlying part of Parkinson's disease to have that, that abnormal sensation in the legs. But, but that by itself may not necessarily keep people up because of the medications that we use. Can you say something about the, what we understand about the reasons why some of these difficulties take place? It's always difficult, I think, to tease out what's the disease, what's caused by the medication. Of the various issues that you've been describing, starting, for example, with this most basic problem of an inability to fall asleep or to stay asleep, is that the disease? And if it is the disease, what is it about the disease that's causing that particular issue to take place? Well, you're exactly right that we are still teasing this out. And I think that's why we still have to have people participate in research, and especially those that are a little bit more extensive that include polysomnography or overnight sleep studies to to help understand what happens in different situations and stages in terms of Parkinson's disease. I think it's relatively recent in the history of Parkinson's disease. We've known about this disease for a couple hundred years, but it's only in the past few decades that we've really recognized that sleep is an issue. And I don't think that it's fully teased out what's medication and what is the disease itself. However, there can be some clues. So if someone has tremor that keeps them awake at night, that's going to be the disease. If people have early morning dystonia uh, or excessive muscle contraction that causes abnormal posturing, that is clearly the disease itself. Now, in terms of something like waking up in the middle of the night, is that the disease or is that medications? And I think that there's still debate about that. Clearly, if people have wearing off in the middle of the night and they are stiff enough that they can't adjust their bedclothes or their sheets or their lying down in one position and can't roll over because of their slowness or stiffness, that's related to the disease itself. And I think in terms of medications, the question really is, does the dopaminergic system that declines in Parkinson's disease have an influence on sleep? And I think that's where we really don't understand the underlying pathology at this point. Because if we understand that, then we can understand the influence of medications on sleep. Because most of them increase the dopamine effect or the amount of dopamine in the brain. So if people take medications at nighttime, does their sleep get better or does it get worse because of the medications? And again, that's an unanswered question. It's still an open question. And if people are symptomatic at nighttime, you give them medications and they get better at night, that's the disease that was disrupting their sleep and their medications may be helpful. There are some people who argue that the dopaminergic system is critical in terms of sleep Again, we don't understand how, and to alter that with our medications may alter the sleep cycle. So I I think the answer is that it's likely to be both the disease and medications, but we don't understand how dopamine impacts sleep like many of the other uh, neurotransmitters in the brain. And I think that really gets to a bigger question in terms of Parkinson's disease, and that is that this is not just a dopamine disease. We are also... Uh, in the past couple of decades have learned that as well. So beyond dopamine, Parkinson's disease has other neurotransmitters. And likewise, in sleep, we never thought dopamine was necessarily a major player, but clearly it is when we look at the impacts of Parkinson's disease on sleep. Does that mean then, just as there is additional research now on how other neurotransmitters are involved in Parkinson's, whether that's the the serotonin system or norepinephrine or those glutamate, all those other areas uh, of the brain systems, neurotransmitters get involved, 
Does that apply? Are you suggesting that applies then for sleep as well and that the solutions then may well involve a better understanding and perhaps utilization or, or treatment of some of those other systems too? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We are really just exploring the other neurotransmitters, whether it's norepinephrine or acetylcholine, others that are impacted in the brain in Parkinson's disease. And if we can understand those better and perhaps address the underlying pathology with those other neurotransmitters, we may be able to get at the sleep aspect in Parkinson's disease as well. We talk a little bit also about some of the issues involved in in dreams and and nightmares. You mentioned earlier that uh, REM behavior, sleep disorder, people acting out dreams, things like that may be an early signal of Parkinson's. Do they also continue over the course of the disease and so that they're not just an early warning sign but continue to be problematic? And what can be done about that? Yeah, I, I, I didn't mean to say that it's an early warning sign and then it goes away. It can be a persistent problem over the course of the disease. It may just be one of the earliest signs of Parkinson's disease and may, in fact, show up years or longer before the motor onset of Parkinson's disease. So it does continue over the course of the disease and can fluctuate based on medications that are used for that individual. In terms of what can be done about it, so there are certain medications that can exacerbate it. And so anytime that we can minimize medications, we like to do that. And it's most commonly, unfortunately, the anti-anxiety agents and uh, antidepressants that may exacerbate REM sleep behavior disorder. And that is a topic for another day, but unfortunately quite common in terms of the population of Parkinson's disease. And so that may be difficult to minimize those medications. If we need to add something for REM sleep behavior disorder, which we sometimes have to do for the patient's safety or their bread partner's safety, we will start with relatively benign medications that are over-the-counter, such as melatonin. Clonazepam in low doses can be used and has been studied in up to two years and continues to be effective in low doses. But if people get up in the middle of the night, they may feel a little groggy. And a lot of geriatricians are reluctant to have people on chronic medications such as clonazepam or other benzodiazepines. And finally, in my clinical experience, although there's not a whole lot of data to support this, gabapentin can sometimes be used uh, to suppress REM sleep behavior disorder. Now, that's the acting out of the dreams, but vivid dreams are also common. Those don't necessarily have to be treated, but can be troublesome or disturbing for some patients. John? Sam, you mentioned that REM behavioral sleep disorder is, a, is an early sign of Parkinson's disease. Does that mean that the pathology starts in the brainstem? Do we know enough that, that basically that, that's what's going on, that, that this is an early stage in the development of the pathology through the brain? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly suggestive because all sleep is a very basic function from the base of the brain. And so it is suggestive that Parkinson's starts in the base of the brain, olfaction or smell may be off as well. And that impacts some of the more primitive aspects of the brain. The gut and constipation can be early. So these are areas of the brain that are uh, well below the the motor side. And so it it is evidence, I think, that it starts at the brainstem and works its way up. There's some pathological evidence to support that as well. But I think that, again, from a 
pathology standpoint, we're still trying to understand where Parkinson's disease starts and how it spreads throughout the brain and how it progresses. But is it, is it true to say that brain behavioural sleep disorder, once it's initiated, tends to stick around rather than comes and goes? Yeah, it can, it, like many symptoms with Parkinson's disease, uh, it can be there for a few years and then may abate and then come out again at another time. And we see that with various aspects of Parkinson's disease. Dystonia can be there early in the course of the disease, can get better and then come back. So it's not uncommon to have a, a symptom like that fluctuate over time. It's not going to be over days, weeks, or even months, but over years. And sometimes it's because of treatments, uh, and sometimes it's because of the natural course uh, and fluctuation of the disease. Now, Sam, there's many consequences of not sleeping well. Sleep is a very important feature of our lives. And can you talk a bit about some of the things that happen to people as a consequence of not, of not getting good sleep, like daytime drowsiness and so forth? Yeah, so, I mean, it's funny because as a society... We, we really ignore sleep, I think, a lot. And you're right, it's a critical part of our daily functioning. When we're hungry, we eat. When we're thirsty, we drink. But when we're tired, you know, maybe we'll play another game on that uh, device that we have or stay up. People with Parkinson's don't necessarily have that option, although they, they can, just like the rest of us, uh, push off sleep. So disrupted nighttime sleep can certainly impact your daytime functioning. And it's pretty common that people with Parkinson's feel this need to have a period of uh, nap or sleep during the daytime. And if it will allow people to function better than 30 to 45 minutes, but certainly well under an hour built into the day, can make people function a whole lot better. Sometimes people can't have that or don't have the ability to nap, and then they do run into excessive daytime sleepiness. That can be a side effect of medications as well as Parkinson's itself or the disrupted sleep. So there are multiple reasons why people might have excessive daytime sleepiness. But it can be addressed. Sometimes we try stimulants. I think there's very weak data to support the fact that that can help, but in certain patients, they find it to be helpful. But addressing the nighttime issues, if possible, can really help with daytime sleepiness. In addition to the sleepiness, people just have a better cognitive function as the rest of us do when sleep is better. Attention, executive function, uh, memory, um, all of those things can improve uh, with, with better sleep. So Sam, some Parkinson patients report what are called sometimes sleep attacks where they, they might be driving and they suddenly fall asleep. How common are these and are these medication related or are these a function of not sleeping well during the night? Um, I think that's a phenomenon that's been described since the late 1990s and initially was associated with just the dopamine agonists. I think that we've recognized that it can be with just about any medication for Parkinson's disease that increases dopamine. So any of the dopamine agonists, levodopa, uh, some of the others as well, are less common. But I think because of an awareness on the physician side and in the patient community side, we're not at the same level of sudden onset of sleepiness episodes as we have been in the past. And I think that it is because of predominantly an awareness of these medications and high enough doses can cause these episodes. And so as people go up and get sleepy, we back off on the medications. I think that those episodes of sudden onset of sleep is predominantly related to medications, but I think it's in the background of someone who has an altered circadian rhythm or a disrupted uh, nighttime 
sleep pattern that causes excessive daytime sleepiness on top of the medication effect. Dave. Sam, I wonder if you would comment some on the difference, if there is a difference, between people who just feel not just tired, but a kind of deep fatigue. And these are sometimes words that are difficult to differentiate. And perhaps that's also tied to another problem, which is apathy and unwillingness to get up and be involved in things. Both that sense of apathy and a kind of deep fatigue are often uh, problems that people with Parkinson's experience. Is that related to these sleep issues that we've been discussing, or is that an entirely different problem? I wish I had a clear answer for that. I think part of the reason that it's difficult for me as a provider to answer that is that sometimes it's very difficult for patients to put into words what they're feeling. But I do my best to help tease out, is this sleepiness, like you could go lie down and fall asleep? Is this apathy more of a motivation issue? Is it fatigue? And fatigue can be either a mental fatigue or a physical fatigue. Is this depression, which is common, um, or is this something else? So those are really the issues that are very common in people with Parkinson's disease. And just because they have one doesn't mean that we can exclude the other. So if people have disrupted nighttime sleep, early morning awakening, and depression, that all could be related. And so sometimes going after the depression can actually help with the daytime sleep. If it's apathy, that's a little bit more difficult to address, but we try different behavioral interventions and minimize medications that may worsen apathy. Fatigue is one of uh, the symptoms that, again, if you look across all Parkinson's disease patients, is remarkably common when you ask about it. But it can mean lots of different things to lots of different people. So if I ask, are you fatigued? That could mean any of the above. To me, this is the most uh, general of the terms. And if we then ruled out apathy, sleepiness, depressed, then we're left with this sense of exhaustion or or fatigue. And that is pretty common in people with Parkinson's disease. And is that sort of deeper level of fatigue and exhaustion caused by something different than the inability to stay asleep or inability to fall asleep that we discussed earlier? And if so, is a different treatment regimen than what's called for? You know, again, I think this has been very difficult to study because we have pretty objective measures when it comes to sleep, right? We can do a a sleep study and we can look at people's brain waves and their breathing patterns and their position. But how do you assess fatigue? Fatigue is quite subjective. There is no blood test to say, ah, fatigue level is X. So we're we're not there in terms of objective uh, measures. And even when it comes to surveys and more subjective measures, we're not that great at measuring fatigue. So we don't understand the, the research and understand it on the pathophysiology side of things. So it makes it difficult to really address in terms of treatment. So that's why it's, we can address depression. We can address many of the sleep issues. But apathy and, and pure fatigue, again, mental or, or physical, it gets a little trickier, and, and it just depends on the person in terms of how we address that from a, in an intervention standpoint. I think one thing that everyone with Parkinson's disease can benefit from, it, and it's all four of those disorders that can be associated with Parkinson's, is exercise. 
And as long as there's not enough apathy to stop them from exercising, building exercise into their schedule may actually help with apathy, fatigue, sleep, and depression. I wanted to ask you also, Sam, about the connection between sleep and other aspects of Parkinson's disease. By that I mean we sometimes see these associations that if you have a problem with balance, you may also be somewhat more in, in uh, danger of, of having perhaps some cognitive issues at some point. Are there connections like that between sleep and other aspects of the disease, particularly with cognition? You mentioned that, you know, if you don't sleep well, you obviously have a harder time performing cognitively. That makes sense. But I'm interested in whether or not there are associations that can be made between sleep problems and other aspects of the disease that help in some ways in defining the particular kind of Parkinson's that someone has. So again, I think that we're in a relatively early stage on the research side of things of understanding that connection and looking at people over time in terms of the sleeping issues that they have and what happens years or even decades later in terms of their cognitive decline. And beyond just the poor sleep causing poor concentration and mental fatigue potentially, is there a connection between sleep disorders and cognition? And I think that really kind of dips into hallucinations. And we know that people that uh, have more issues with hallucinations, are at higher risk for developing cognitive issues. And when I ask about hallucinations, often people will talk about their vivid dreams and perhaps even their REM sleep behavior disorder. And what's the connection between that and cognition? That we don't really know. But hallucinations that people have upon awakening or as they're falling asleep, does that have a prediction in terms of whether people are going to have a higher chance of cognitive issues? Again, I think that we're looking into that at this point. But people who have hallucinations in general, we think, may be at higher risk for cognitive issues. So as people are falling asleep, waking up, and during the sleep, if they're having hallucinations, is it the same issue? I think that's an, an unanswered question, but the answer is possibly. Hmm. John? Yes, a couple of other things you sometimes hear from people with Parkinson's about the difficulties of sleep is difficulty of turning over during the night and problems with drooling. Can you talk about anything that can be suggested to help people with those conditions? Sure. So the turning over at nighttime is a little easier to address. There are some physicians out there who feel that because the dopamine system is not necessarily involved in sleep, you should not treat Parkinson's disease at nighttime. There's no need to do that. And people will wind up wearing off in the middle of the night or early morning hours. So that's why I feel that a longer-acting medication is appropriate for uh, those patients who are having issues in the middle of the night or early morning. And we'll commonly do that so that they can turn over, adjust their bedclothes and sheets and things like that. So that's, that's a little easier. Drooling is unfortunately a, a socially disabling problem that can actually contribute to aspiration pneumonia as well. So it's not just a social issue, but it can be a medical safety issue. And Part of the reason to uh, different ways of dressing drooling, I should say, is one, to go up on the dose of medication. People with Parkinson's don't make extra saliva, but they're not having the usual clearing of their saliva and swallowing like someone without Parkinson's disease. And so it may be a sign of bradykinesia or that slowness that they're just not 
clearing their secretions like they should. And so it may be a sign that they're under-treated. If they're adequately treated or we've reached a ceiling from side effects because of their medications and patients are doing pretty well from that standpoint, then we can go into medications that may specifically address drooling. And half of them I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole on most of my patients because they're anticholinergic. And those medications can have some significant cognitive effects, can impact gait as well, worsen uh, constipations, but they do cause a little bit of dry mouth. And so there are some medications that we can use, whether it is pills, uh, some people use different drops. Personally, I like therapeutic botulinum neurotoxin injections uh, into some of the salivary glands because it works locally, has a, a low chance of any side effects, but can worsen swallowing and, and can dramatically reduce the amount of saliva that people produce. Again, people with Parkinson's don't make too much. They're just not clearing it normally. But if you can cut it down by 30 to 50%, then that can sometimes stop the drooling. So my last question for you, Sam, is, is that some patients ex- seem to experience a sleep benefit and despite being off L-DOPA for many, many hours, wake up refreshed while others wake up rigid. Is this just showing you the extreme heterogeneity of the population of people with Parkinson's or is there something else going on to explain this difference? I think it's nature's way of teasing people with Parkinson's disease Um, (laughs) because it's true. There are some people who wake up and they get a few seconds of feeling completely normal and then Parkinson's kicks in. There are some lucky people who get more than uh, a few seconds or minutes and might even get an hour or more of feeling very, very good without even having taken their medications in terms of their Parkinson's disease. And so this sleep effect is well-documented and well-known clinically, but again, I think that it really speaks to the fact that we don't fully understand the influence of sleep on Parkinson's disease. And this can happen to people that even don't have the best night's rest But if they're falling asleep from 3 in the morning and wake up at 6, 6.30, and they can get that sleep effect, then there's got to be something to that sleep, to their circadian rhythm, to the rest of their hormones and neurotransmitters, as well as the timing of the medications. But we don't understand it. And to me, that's one of the most interesting aspects of Parkinson's diseases. Why do people get that sleep effect? And why do some people get none versus others that get hours? I think that that's, it's one of those unanswered questions that motivates me to continue to, to study Parkinson's disease. Just one last question for me, um, Sam. You just referenced one of the unanswered questions, and you've, you've commented a time or two throughout our, our interview about the need to understand various aspects of these sleep issues. It reminds me of something that the British neurologist Ray Chowdhury told John uh, and me in one of our recent podcasts on the non-motor problems in in Parkinson's disease. And his comment was that those issues, non-motor problems in Parkinson's, had just not been researched enough, hadn't just not enough attention had been paid to them. You seem to be suggesting that's true as well for sleep. So I wondered if you'd just say something about the need for further focus and research in this area and what you hope you can learn that will give us a greater understanding of the disease itself? So until we have a cure for every neurodegenerative disease, I think that there are going to be so many aspects of the disease that we need to understand better to work toward better treatments. 
and ultimately, hopefully, a cure. And I think that what happens to a third of our day in terms of sleep in general is very much understudied and, and not understood. And so that's in the general population. Then we take populations like people with Parkinson's disease and throw sleep problems on that, and we really don't understand it. So even just basics in terms of what happens to the sleep cycles and movements at nighttime so that the usual kind of sleep study stuff that may or may not be studied well needs more people to participate and understand this. And not only that, in terms of the symptomatic onset and people who have Parkinson's, but this may be one of the clues in terms of who's at risk for developing Parkinson's disease. So we check certain blood tests to see if people are at risk for thyroid disease, for example, or diabetes or things like that. This may be one of the areas that we can look to see if people are at risk for developing Parkinson's disease down the road. So helping to understand what happens to sleep in Parkinson's disease can help the general population in terms of sleep and may be, in fact, a way to understand who's going to get Parkinson's disease. So we need more people to participate and we need more researchers to be doing the research to understand Parkinson's disease and sleep better. That was Dr. Sam Frank of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And Dave, I think he's made the case that really we need good research in this area because sleep is so fundamental to all our lives. I can personally testify, Dave, having come back from a long plane trip to South Africa, that it took me days and days and days and days to get over my jet lag, something in most of my life I've managed much better. Is that what you find too? It is. And of course, as with so many things with Parkinson's, it's difficult to tease out whether or not the problems you have sleeping are because of Parkinson's or because of the particular age that you and I both happen to be. But it certainly seems to be a constant problem for people with Parkinson's, as Sam Frank observed, one that needs a lot more research. I thought, John, the other point that he made that's, again, not... This isn't news, but I think it's always good to be reminded of it, which is that sleep represents one-third of our lives, and we underappreciate it at our peril, I think, in, in society generally. And, of course, that means that it's a particularly acute problem that deserves further study for people with Parkinson's. Let's hope we, we find out more about that uh, at the Portland uh, gathering uh, coming up uh, just a few months from now. That's it for this edition of the Portland Countdown. I'm Dave Iverson. And I'm John Palferman. Portland Countdown is brought to you by the World Parkinson Coalition with technical support provided by Danny Bringer. Special thanks to our expert guests who make this series possible and who serve the Parkinson's community. Support for Portland Countdown comes from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit WPC2016.org to learn about the upcoming Fourth World Parkinson Congress in September 2016.